Hi guys, I'm Mark Gellard along here with Tom Downs. Guys, how are you? And Mark Slama. Thanks for tuning in to Talking Tennis, the show that promises to bring you the most current, interesting and controversial information regarding everything and anything in the tennis world. Talking Tennis is dedicated to bringing you insights from three in-the-trench coaches with differing backgrounds and from different cultures, but whose goals are ultimately to promote the sport of tennis and increase interaction. We aim to hold no punches as we attempt to transform the tennis world's thinking for the better. Thanks for tuning in again, and in this first segment here today, we're going to start off with the hot seat and talk about a very hot uh, subject in the tennis world, especially in the United States at the moment, which is the current changes within the USTA, which is the uh, American system for developing players. And um, I'm going to pass this over here to Tom and Mark now to discuss the USTA and where it is now and how the new hiring of Martin Blackman and the step down of Patrick McEnroe is going to affect the US tennis for the better. So, guys, over to you. So, just a precision. The USTA is, uh, is the United States Tennis Association. It, it's not specifically just in development of players. It's what handles all of the tennis in the U.S. in terms of tournaments. And in the last, in the last seven years under Patrick McEnroe, they made a decision to focus more on player development, and they've invested 15% of their budget towards that. The budget becomes mostly from the U.S. Open. So, it's interesting for us to look at those uh, last seven, ten years yep. under Patrick McEnroe and take a look at where we are in terms of results, what the Federation should and shouldn't be doing in terms of coaching. But did, did uh, let me ask you, Mark, did, did Patrick McEnroe's tenure as the head of the USTA, was it effective? Well, this is, this is, this is what we have to look at the stats and um, to make our mind on this because there's debate. Right now, if you ask anybody in the streets, how is American tennis doing? They're saying, we have no one. We have Nobody that anybody can recognize. But having said that, I mean, they do have players in the top. I mean, in the men's, we've got John Isner, Jack Sock, Sam Querrey, Donald Young, Steve Johnson, and Tim Smicek. That's my point, but any of those names. Tennis, American tennis used to be Agassi, Sampras, Chang, The Courier. Everybody knew all those guys. Uh, walking the street, ask anybody if you know Sam Querrey. And look at the blank face you're going to get. Is that because we're not developing champions or people aren't as, as in touch with tennis now as they were maybe 10 or 12 years ago? Or, I mean, uh, what, what are we trying to... When you say you don't know... It's, it's obviously linked to the fact that these guys that you're talking about, if we go down the list, how many of them have made even a semi of a Grand Slam? John Isner? Never. Jack Sock? Never. Query? Never. Donald Young? Never. Steve Johnson? Came out of the college system? I don't know. Maybe, maybe around the 16? Not, that needs to be checked. Uh, and uh, Tim Smicek, who's, who's uh, on his way, also has never made, made it far in a Grand Slam. Well, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but Tom, would you say that that's because Americans have been spoiled in the past? I mean, we've, we've had guys, you know, dominating such as Sampras, Agassi, Courier, Chang, well, I, but now we've, you know, the U.S. is expecting that kind of success continually. Is that realistic? No, I don't think it is, Mark. I think that if we take a look at Agassi, Sampras, Courier, Chang, guys from that era that won Grand Slams and were consistent, you know, top ten players, and, you know, the guys that were household names, they had a significant greater amount of talent than the current guys that are coming through. So I, I sort of think it's a... You could probably also argue that the competition is much stronger worldwide. Absolutely. It's more of a global game now, for sure. But I think that... Um, if we're talking about the USTA, if we look at Agassi, Sampras, they weren't trained by the USTA. These are pure products of private coaching. Agassi, uh, his dad in Bolletieri, uh, Sampras, uh, Lansdorp, uh, 
Well, that and that. Uh, Fisher. If you look at that, the USTA. Probably fair to say Chang spent a bit of time there, but he was probably the only Grand Slam champion from that era who did. But, I mean, that opens up a whole new can of worms, I think, because you're then looking at that constant debate of federation versus private coach. And what's the, you know, what's the best way to go? I mean, if you're a tennis parent right now and you've got a kid that's developing at a young age and you're getting offers of maybe a free or partial scholarship to a USDA training site versus staying with a private coach, which is obviously going to cost you a significant amount of money. I mean, which way do you go based on that, what you've just said there? I think that's the, the whole basis of this discussion is that the U.S. has been very successful in tennis, training, training players privately, like most of the players trained, and not necessarily Americans. A lot of players going through the academy, private system in the U.S. have been amazing players. In the last 10 years or so, America hasn't produced that many. So that's, this is why the Federation decided to need to jump in and we need to do something now. It's a debate whether a federation should do that. We should maybe take a look at other countries to see what's going on in other countries. Is it possible for a federation to develop players? Is that something that happens on a... Well, I think in smaller countries places? it is. You know, I think in smaller countries it is. But in a country of this size, where you have three, what's it, three regional training centers operated by the USTA. New York, uh, California, New York, Carson, California, yep. and Boca Raton, Florida. So, bit, But I mean, you know, if I, I'm going to just make a, I mean, as you know, the USTA's national body unveiled plans not too long ago that they're actually creating a $60 million facility with 100 courts over in Orlando. So obviously some of the money that they're making through their tournaments or through the US, the US Open, US those US funds US are US being pumped back into player development. So we, we, we like that. But, you know, myself coming from England, I have seen firsthand that buying facilities and, or, or creating facilities with this money, with this revenue, doesn't solve the problem. I mean, we've got one of the best training facilities in the world. If anyone's ever been to Roehampton, it's a fantastic facility. Doesn't smell of hard work, though, does it, that facility? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. And the infrastructure's lacking. So just building this site is, is, is a great thing. But is it going to solve the problem? No, it's not going to solve the problem. It's, an, it's interesting to look at other countries because I refer to France, where I come from. And I know that over in France, the Federation trains pretty much all the players. By the age of 13 or 14, they go into... A, regional training camps or the, or, the, or the national training camp in Paris. And France has, has constantly been placing a high number of players in the top 100. However, with the exception of Morris and Bartoli recently, France has been unable to produce a single Grand Slam champion or number one in the world. So that shows the limit of trying to create players using the same model for all of them. The French players are all created using the same model. All the French coaches have the same basic training, which is something that does not apply to the U.S. if we compare. Because if you look at the coaches at the USTA, they all come from different backgrounds. There are a lot of foreign coaches. Right, I mean, you have Jose Higueras, who's been heading up the, uh, the Federation's coaching department for a number of years now. I mean, there's even been suggestions by some people that the USTA shouldn't even be involved in coaching. It should be more of a managing. They should be more of a support system, is what, what we're hearing a lot, that, that rewards the coaches who are getting success in their in their own private structures. Well, I just don't... those kids travel, that helps those coaches work. Hmm. I just don't think there can be a cookie-cutter system or, or approach for, you know, for everybody. Different things work for 
different people. Tennis history definitely seems to prove you right. We've seen so many <coughs> different styles, and the way tennis is going right now, everybody's kind of learning the same game, which is going to make it hard for guys to... Since when has America had to copy someone else's system? We seem to copy the Spanish system. That seems to be the flavor of the last few years, if you want to call it that. Um, but look, I mean, a, a Spanish mindset is not going to work for kids from this country. It's just not. I mean, it might work for kids who've got some sort of a Spanish background who, you know, well, move to a... One would, America, argue, one would argue that the American system was in a, in a, in a lump, that how things weren't working, they weren't creating players, so is it necessarily bad to look at other countries and try to get the best of what's going on over there, even though you have to adapt, because... Uh, Maybe take US, a hybrid approach. never be Sweden, for sure. It's a different country, different number Well, if we're going to do it like that, um, if we wanted to take a look at the volleys, we'd probably take the Australians. If we wanted to take a look at serves, we'd probably take the Americans and the Australians as well. Maybe some of the... European countries such as Croatia. If we wanted to take a look at technique, we'd take a look at the it, it makes Europeans. To me that you, so you, I think just a hybrid. Take, take a look at the yeah. yeah. Who's who's working the best in the world in such domain? Yeah, just different areas. Take the best from the world in each area, then make that more of the philosophy. You know, for improving this country's tennis. I, I just don't think taking the Spanish approach for you know for everybody and making all the drills exactly the same and. Making it a cookie cutter, you know, kind of a system that is not going to work. Well, I mean, as, but but all of us are sitting here as coaches now, as <coughs> private coaches. We tend to work one on one or, or semi privately. We're not working for federations. We're not working for academies. Uh, you know, personally, I've had some experience of this, and I'm sure you guys have, and other coaches out there that might be listening, that we we work hard, we develop players, and there's always a fear, a constant fear that. Your player, if she or he succeeds, the USTA is going to be chomping at the bits to be involved with that player, and potentially you're losing a job. And I've got friends in the business. There's a guy that runs a great academy up in New Jersey called Court Sense. His name is Gordon Euling. I've had lengthy discussions with him who says the same thing, that there is a constant concern as a private coach that if you develop a player and do a good job, you cannot compete with free which is essentially what the USTA are offering a lot of players. is free training, free maybe room and board, whatever it is, and we cannot compete with that. Instead, the USTA, should they be just, a, like you've already said, a support system, but keeping the current coach. I mean, you look at players like James Blake, having one coach through their life, uh, Justine Hennon, players like that. But it's so much for me about the relationship between the player and the coach. Well, and when you go yeah. into an academy, you're yeah. losing that. And I'm not sure, um, you know, look, I, I think that's right, it's an excellent point. It does happen, obviously, it's happened to Gordon, it's happened to probably, you know, hundreds of coaches in, in this country. But the other thing, too, is, you know, from my personal experiences, every time I've called the USTA to get match play or get some organised training for some of the better girls I've coached from this country, they've always helped out, they've always tried to be a part of the team. Not for a second have I ever thought they were trying to steal a player. They're... You know, their feedback's extremely good. They give me a courtesy phone call at the end of it each day for a bit of an update. The c collaboration is extremely good. So I'm not sure if it's all the regional training centres that do that. The one here in Boca does not do that, you know, from experience. And I, I think now the USTA doesn't have any full-time students. That tells me they've gone in the direction of working as a team. Martin Blackman, who's just come in, has clearly said it takes a team of people to develop tennis players. Just to go back to this point, the 
most players that you look at through the history of tennis, you can you can name an influence in their career. Agassi, his dad, Voluntary, and are you going to get that if you go through a USDA national coach? The question I'm asking, or are you going to get it more if you go with help from the USDA, gives you feedback, but you still have that link with that coach who helped you at the beginning when you were through those years, 10, 12, and he helped you through those times and he knows you really well and he, I mean, and he, uh, he, he cares in a different way, in a more personal way because it's yeah. more of his project. Then you go with the under 14 coach at the USDA who's going to keep you for two years and then pass you along. Uh, the well, I mean, I, I, I just think there's so many different ways to look at this. And, and, and going back again, just one more time, back to Martin Blackman. I, I'm not envious of this guy's position. I think he's a fantastic coach. He's obviously got a great playing record. What was the reason for hiring Martin to take over? Because he, he's got a very difficult task ahead of him. Based on where the USTA is now, what they need to have done to get where they should be. I mean, this is a guy that pretty much no matter what he's going to do, he's going to be criticized for. I mean, this is a, a no-win situation. Well, uh, the, unless he wins a Grand Slam in the next, unless an American player wins a Grand Slam in the next three or four years, it seems a very hard task. Now, if you look at numbers right now, and we look, look at juniors, we have, uh, we have eight players in the top 100 in both boys and girls that are American. Eight girls and eight boys, or eight total? Eight girls and eight boys. From America, okay. And most of these players have had some contact with the Federation. Some of them have been trained privately. What does that tell us about the state of junior tennis in the U.S. right now? Because the image that everybody has is that it's not working, but hey, nearly 10 players in the top 100, both boys and girls. And then if you look at the top, at the top 100 girls, uh, WTA. 13 of them. 13, 13 inside of the top 100. And most of them under 20. 11 outside of the Williams sisters, and a whole bunch of them rank between 101 and 200. So it's looking good on the ladies' side. And a lot of these girls are under 23. A lot of them are under the age of 23, and almost all of them have spent a significant amount of time at the USTA. But, it, I, you know, for me, coming from England, I was actually at the Wimbledon qualifying with a player two years ago. And there was a bunch of guys there walking around, parents of players, I should say, wearing different T-shirts they'd had made saying F the LTA or LTA and then in brackets underneath, let's try again as the abbreviation of what that should stand for. That's the mentality or the mindset that we've got in England. A lot of people, British people, they, they have a lot of, uh, the, the word is bitterness, I think, towards their own country's federation if they don't get what they think they deserve. You know, how, how can we judge what someone deserves? Some players seem to get more than others. There seems to be some political stuff, some, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy in these federations. Uh, I mean, how do, you, how do you manage this? I mean, even there's talk of, you know, some of these federations, have, uh, there's some corruption or whether it's helping people helping people. But, I mean... How do we move into a situation now where we can streamline this whole process and make it very simple? I've looked at, you know, Slovakia. For, I mean, I spent some time in Slovakia. They have a very simple system. If your ranking is 800, they will fund you fully for a year. They will fund you and your private coach for a year. And with the goal that you have to be 400 by the end of the year. If you meet that goal, you qualify again for another year's support. If you do not, your cut is very, very simple. And they are a small country, relatively speaking, and they produce players. They do. And the whole Czech, the Czech uh, situation is very, very similar, all those Eastern Middle European countries. 
The interesting thing to me is I get all the time, Tennis Australia has a great support system for, you know, for its players, for its coaches and all that stuff. And there's some good things about Australian tennis. They've obviously got some gifted players coming up. They've got some great ex-players that are now coaching at the National Academies. Recently, however, two players left their program, a junior girl and a junior boy. The junior boy now plays for Japan, and the junior girl is, has got her own coaching team. The reason they left is Tennis Australia said to them, if you train under our system, we will fully fund you, but we, but we provide the coach and we call the shots. Both of those juniors said, no, thank you. Our, our system is working. We believe we've got a great support system. Why won't you support us? So, interestingly, you know, these, you know, the parents of these players have made comments on Facebook to the effect that the USTA actually supports their, um, you know, the private sector and the players that choose to work with their private coaches much more so than Tennis Australia does. That's an interesting point. If you, if you compare with France, which arguably produces a lot of players, and we have right now... Right now you've got, what, nine players have, in the top... Right now we have three... Four we ladies three inside in the top, the top 100. We have three in the top 15 right now, and we have uh, nine players in the top 100. For the men. For the men. For the men. For the women, four inside the top 100. And we have... And three in, or four, in yeah. In France, four. it's the same as what Tom was speaking about Australia. In France, the Federation cuts the private coaches... So that's, that causes a lot of tension and a lot of problems too. But the French players have this big advantage over privately funded players is that they have to worry about nothing money-wise. And they don't have a system that, that's like the Slovakian system because they're not so concerned about, about, uh, about the results right away. They give them plenty of time to develop. They pay for everything. They're traveling, they're coaching. Um, However, there are also some French players who choose to leave the system. Jenny Mina, who trains in Florida, was under the Federation, and he chose because he felt that not the right choices had been made for him. He chose to come and train right here, and he's training in Dory Beach. Right. What yeah. about Sebastian Grosjean? Sebastian, Sebastian Grosjean was actually in the Federation, was kicked out because he was too short. Federation told him you're not going to do anything. So he went, and with Arnaud Clément went, being yeah. the same height, was he also kicked out? And Arnaud Clément was, wasn't even in it. He yeah. was, they, they both trained privately in the south of France. Cédric Pirin had private coaching also when he, when he pushed through the system. So there are arguments both ways. And they, it gives you a great uh, security to have everything paid I think for. the bottom line is, if, you know, for federations to produce players and to get the best out of each potential top 100 player, let's say, different things work for different people and the federation has to get it right for each player. I just have one last question. Is, is it possible for a federation of any country to say we're going to develop a Grand Slam champion? Is it, it's possible to say we're going to get players in the top 100. The US is doing it now. France has always been doing it. England, more difficulty. But well, I think with, I think with the game, well, I, I think with the way the game is being so global, I, I think if you did say that, I think it's an it's kind of an arrogant thing to say. It's kind of a pretty yeah, I don't, thing to come out and say. I, yeah, I don't I, question, I don't think you can say it because it's more with numbers. Like if I get uh, if I get no because no well no because we could have you know like the French used to have a whole bunch of players inside the top hundred or, or like the Australians had they're in. Like the nineties, you know, we had Fromberg, Stoltenberg, the Woodies, all, all good singles players, all ranked but, between. But Tom, then look at. But but you look at a country, for example, like Serbia. 
You know, this is a small-time well, country with, to. yeah, exactly the no players, and the they've course. developed. They have the mentality of a champion. So, so is it the so mentality think, more? Well, yeah, I think it is. So I think that while the USDA does a great job in increasing the numbers, they, you know, they do all these things for, you know, the 10 and under programs and all that. that, that that's fantastic. But if you want Grand Slam champions, you've got to install the mentality of a champion into your players at a young age, like a... Like a, a Pillich did for Novak Djokovic. Okay. Nikki Pillich did a tremendous job of. Let's look at the top three or four today. Djokovic, who, Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer, who are incredible statistics. Federer was trained through a federation. The Swiss federation. He was trained by an Australian with the Swiss with Federation. The, and a French. Peter Carter. Peter Carter and. Yeah. George Dunyu for a while. Completely trained through the federation. Um, Rafael Nadal, I don't know if he got that much help from the federation. I think he was mainly with his uncle. 100% his uncle did the. Yeah, the work from A to Z. You've got Andy Murray, and in, and in Djokovic's case, he also trained privately in academies, mostly in Germany and Spain. And what about Andy Murray? Well, Andy obviously had his mum kind of; she was the driving force behind his tennis from a young age. But then he moved over to Spain, so you, you know he 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 kind of he had a little bit of both, you know. But he was always a, a pretty. Uh, standout player from an early age so he was always having some private coaching whether it was you know even as, as if we go back and look at Miles McLagan, Brad Gilbert um, you know these kinds of players that he's you know he's had a lot of high profile coaches and then going back into Spain but yeah I agree with you Mark I think that to say that you can make a player is very difficult you can provide the opportunities the environment. and the environment but you know Ultimately, you can take a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink it. Simple as that, right? Yeah. I just think you should keep that in mind when we judge, or when we have an opinion yeah. on how Martin Blackman does at the USDA or how Patrick McEnroe do. Absolutely. Well, guys, look, I want to move the discussion on here into the next uh, segment of our uh, of our episode here, and we're going to move this on to uh, a section here we call the general takes aim. Um, in this section, we're going to discuss a couple of uh, controversial happenings in the tennis world at the moment. Um, we're going to start it off here with, uh, well, everyone's favorite talking point at the moment, Jeannie Bouchard, and what has happened. Um, recently, she's been in the news for her lack of form, but more than that, she recently uh, refused to shake hands before the match with Alexander Delguero in the Fed Cup match, and that's uh, created a lot of criticism. Um, I want to get your guys' take on it, but I want to, before we start that, I just want to give you a little bit of information. Bouchard's record so far, this time right now, in the middle of April, her record is 6-7. and seven. At the same exact time last year, she was 18-8. and eight. And that's a big difference. What has happened to Eugenie Bouchard? Well, I think she got away from a system that was working. For whatever the reasons, I mean, we've all heard different sides of it. You know, either she left Saviano or Saviano chose to discontinue his work with her. So, but either way, Nick knew how to get the most out of her. She got away from that. Um, she's had some highly credentialed coaches since, obviously, Sam Sumix. Sorry, he's the only one. Um, he's a great coach, but in my opinion, Jeannie has parts of her game that need developing you know the serve needs work things need work she can get better in so many areas Nick Saviano is a great developmental coach he has a, a record which very few coaches have in that department 
I think it's a mistake to get away from Nick. I think the thing she should do now is pick up the phone and call him and say, look, I want to get things back. She made a mistake. Yeah, she made a mistake. But she's got to be mature enough and not stubborn enough to admit that. Well, I think the thing is, we've spoken to Nick Saviano. Nick Saviano said after the Wimbledon final, very rarely was she healthy after that for the rest of the year. She did not take his advice. So every single week, you know, she'd play because she wanted to play. She wouldn't take time off to heal them, you know, to heal injuries. Just the injuries, whether it's a minor one or kind of a nagging one. Um, you know, she just kept playing. She was on her own agenda. That doesn't work for Nick Saviano, and it shouldn't. It shouldn't. She needs to be, you know, I mean, if you've got something that's working, you know, I've heard some people say, well, she was trying to find somebody better. She was trying to, to get better. She was... Why, why, why fix or why change something that's working? It was working. Well, there was progress in the right direction. Uh, you know, I think was she one of the, the breakthrough players of the WTA last year or some, some, she won some kind of award. I mean, I, I mean I'm reading on... on Couldn't you argue that she, that she had reached a peak with her system? Like she Wimbledon final, the semifinals at the French, uh, with her style of play, could be argued that she felt that she couldn't do more in the system and that she needed something different. It's, well, if that was the always, case, not always the time to leave. Just when results. Get well, if that was the case, well, well, if that was the case, we could have watched her play this year and said, "Has she improved her serve?" That was the number one thing that had to be worked on. No, the answer is no. It it, it hasn't happened. Is is she getting? better at coming forwards and finishing at the net. No, it's probably stayed a bit the same. Has she lost confidence? Have the other players worked out how to play her? Your breakthrough year is often the, you know, it's, it's a good year. But, but the year following awesome. that, when you've got some pressure on you... Is it too early to judge? This is April. And what's her record? Well, she's 6-7 and seven right now. That's well, I think some of the beatings she's had have been lopsided beatings. She lost first round at Charleston to Davis, who's a very, very... Solid player, but not at the solid same top level. fifty player, but hasn't done the things that Bouchard's done in big tournaments. I'm not arguing Easily. That the results are remarkably. No, I don't think it's. No, I don't think it's. Is it not too early to judge after thirteen matches? Should well, I mean, should she have more? Well, the bottom line is, she should have played a lot more than thirteen matches up to this point this year. So I, I, I think she needs to pick up that phone and get, and call up Nick and say, Nick, I want to get back to what was working. Can I have another chance? Well, I mean, I'm I've been uh, I'm on the on the internet reading an article here on ESPN, the Buzz, and the title of the article is how Eugenie Bouchard's hand off approach hands off approach totally backfired. And I've been reading some of the comments left here by some of the readers. And it seems, you know, it's certainly in this article, a lot of people are turning against us. You know, uh, top commenter, spoiled brat with no class. Does that include, ex- does that include her peers? or No, this, or just- this is just a, a, an article on ESPN discussing her. You know, too many people say she cannot handle the spotlight. Her attitude is bigger than her game. She's definitely the it girl. But what the it is, I fail to see. The Fed Cup is a traditional sport. She needs to go with the traditional, stay home. They're all valid points. I personally, for me, I think she's a quality player. And I think she's going to be a staple player in the top 10 for a number of years. Her game is too solid. She's, she's very, very strong in all areas. There's definitely parts of her game that need to improve, such as her, her serve, moving forwards, taking balls uh, at the net. Whatever these things need to be improved on, they will be. But she is an extremely solid, well-rounded player, like her or hater. But is it too early to judge? 
Possibly, but right now she's not making the right decisions and she needs to get back to what was working. Mark, any comments, further comments on this before we move the discussion on? My opinion would be to wait till the, the, clay, and, uh, the clay and grass season have passed. And uh, what are we going to say if she reaches the semis and finals again? I think it's too early to tell. She's been through a lot of changes. Uh, they were maybe bad decisions, but in the end, the results will tell. Right now, they're not to her advantage. So, all right. So, she's had a rough couple of weeks. She's had a rough experience at Fed Cup. Yes. Um, she chose Self-inflicted. She chose to make a questionable decision about refusing to shake somebody's hand. Say what you like about it. That thing only motivates and gives her peers extra incentive to, to beat her. She's not that Absolutely. popular among her peers. Now, my thing to Jeannie is, you know, how are you going to get confidence going into the clay season? But, but Tom, I agree with what you said there, but let me just put it this. We, we, you know, we're talking here on this show and talking tennis. We, we, we want to bring tennis into a little bit more of a modern era. It's been a gentleman's sport for too long. And it's not a highly, it's not a spectator friendly sport in a lot of ways. For a lot of people, find it very boring to watch. You know, if you go and you watch these NHL games, these NFL games, the, you know, the, the pre warm up for boxing matches, these guys aren't shaking hands and wishing each other good luck. I mean, is she not, maybe she broke a tradition, but someone's got to do it. Maybe is it time? I mean, is she really well, I think the thing just is, a pioneer? Let's, it is let's just go back to the. But you don't have to say that to your opponent. You can just shake hands, say nothing, and move on. But we go That's into a, to a, you know, I mean, tennis in a lot of ways, and I use this a lot, this an analogy a lot with my players. It's like a boxing match out there. It's a one-on-one boxing match. Now you see all these guys, Mayweather, and all these guys before their but they their shake fights. Hands before it. They shake hands, but they may be up in each other's face. They're in there. They're not wishing each other. They're not. There's no niceties about I've it. I've got no problem. She. With that. I, I believe that tennis needs to have some changes made to make it more spectator-friendly. Did she not just pioneer it and be the first uh, one to move point. it forward? Here's, and here's something else I've got to bring up there that stands out. Let's go back to the, the tennis boom era for just a minute. We had Connors, McEnroe, Stasi sort of coming in. And those guys came in after we had the Aussies who were good sportsmen and the Americans who were good sports, a couple of French, a couple of British players there as well. And everybody criticised those guys. Connors, McEnroe, Nastasi was obviously Borgin there, who was the good guy. But that was, you know, tennis has never experienced a boom like that ever since. And Connors said it best. He goes, look, we brought you guys a bit of everything. There was, we were all entertainers in our own, you know, ways. But you criticised us. So, yes, I think tennis needs that. I think it was, you know, I think it's... You know, I think it's good to have the Hewitts. I think it's good to have, um, you know, the guys that are a bit brash, girls that are a bit brash. I think that Bouchard is great for tennis. It brings up talking points for the regular people. Yeah. I think going back to the Bouchard incident, it, it's, it's, a quite, it's a good debate to have. I just think it was poor judgment to do it at this time in her career. When she's in a, when she's in a law like this, when other players feel that they can take a pick at her and that she's not as strong as she was. This is maybe not the best time to make a stand like this. She could have done this last year, she could do this next year when things get better. It just, for me, shows a little bit poor judgment. Oh, she's very young, she's immature. I I, I agree that the timing could have been better, but I mean, she's young, she's immature, and uh, you know, look, in any sport. And it makes it a lot worse to follow that up with a a loss. 
with a loss, yeah. yeah. But, but you know, in, in, in any sport, in any sport, you know, whether you're talking about hockey or football or basketball, you know, the, the first year guys, the, the new guys that have come in out of the drafts always have nothing to lose. And almost last year was Jeannie's Your first year. Your sophomore year is hard. The sophomore year is always year hard. Up. Exactly. And she's, she's struggling. Which is all the more reason I would go back to Saviano. Go back to what's working, okay? The guy got you there. Chances are he's going to know how to keep you there. So when everybody's worked out how to play you, you know, he's going to be able to add things that are within her capabilities. He's going to be able to make the adjustments that the serve has to, well, you know, really have. He's, he's known her for a long time. And, and, and the other thing, too, is, and the other thing, too, is, I say this in a politically correct kind of a way, usually, you know, coaches, roughly, you know, the Aussies tend to coach the Aussies, the French tend to coach the French, or like the Europeans tend to coach the Europeans from, you know, the close-by countries. Brits tend to coach the Brits, or the English-speaking, you know, coaches tend to coach the English-speaking players in general. Um, not saying that that's a real important thing here, but I think in the case of Bouchard and Nick, the one good thing they did have was the excellent communication. That seemed to really stand out. Nick has known her for a long time. He knows how to get through to her. Mentally, he was great for her. Uh, his on-court coaching was great. Uh, he, he, you know, he knew which buttons to push. And, and, and when you start with a new coach, it takes a while to establish the communication. Sue Mick's gone, you know, from coaching a, an already established player like Azarenka. He did a great job. He made the adjustments and the, the fine turnings that had to be, be made there for her to become a, a champion and to win Grand Slams, which she obviously did. But those, but adjustments, to, but those adjustments took time. Those, those adjustments took time. It, it was not an overnight thing, but so far, um, it doesn't seem to me as though the chemistry is right. Could it turn around? Well, look, I mean, it's, it's possible. Um, but if I'm Jeannie Bouchard, I'm going to pick up that phone and well, call the former coach. Yeah, I, I, I think right now with what Mark just said, based on... Uh, her, her mindset of the timing of things. I don't think she's going to do it. You know, she's made a poor decision yeah. there at the she's Fed Cup. Well, I think it's an ego yeah, thing as well. I think it's an ego thing as well. I mean, I don't think she's going to admit she's made a mistake. I think it may come... I mean, it should come now. Like, in a perfect world, I think it should come now. Do I think it will come now? No, I think it will come... Well, maybe end of the year. I mean, who knows? Probably after the grass court season would be a, a you know... Well, yeah, I, I, a time I, when coaches tend. Well, it'll be an interesting. It'll be an interesting topic to keep an eye on, and um, I'm going to push on the discussion now and uh, go on. You know, we've looked at a WTA player. I want to spotlight a little bit on the ATP side now. I'm going to pass ask Mark here. Rafa Nadal, what's going on? Is he finished? I mean, I made a call a couple of years ago that Federer was done, and that didn't turn out too well for me. So I'm going to sit back on this one and let you kind of give us your insights because. He's obviously struggling, and you've got some numbers there that you can well, s sort yeah, before, of provide before us Before we go into the analysis, let's look at some numbers. Uh, this year, Nadal is 19-7 and seven after the Barcelona tournament. Last year, he was 26-5, and five, so obviously this year is more difficult for him. Uh, but if you look a little closer at the numbers, last year, and specifically the clay season, he lost in the third round quarterfinals of both Monaco and Barcelona. So the same as this year? Pretty much the same as this season. And against 
you would argue the same level of players. He went on to also lose in Rome in the final to Djokovic, and then he went on to win the French Open. So maybe it takes Nadal a, a little bit more time this season to get going. We know of his seasons where he would just lose one match on clay. Given Rafa's history, being arguably the greatest clay court player of all time, I think it's a little early to count him out. Although, there's a few things that stand out, and I think it's got to be due to confidence. I, I agree. Number one, his balls are, you know, don't, don't have the same kind of penetration they once did. You know, they're landing short, Djokovic is getting on his front foot, he's stepping into Rafa's balls, he's in, argue, in control of the points. I would argue that Nadal's had phases like that before, where his ball wasn't yeah. moving as fast, and despite that, he was still winning. But is that because now he lacks the same kind of strength that he once did? One thing did? that I noticed have changed is... His comments that he made after Monaco is, I'm not playing well, I'm not doing anything. But show, and it kind of opened But he's always been very honest. But to me, that opens the door to his opponents, given the fact that he's also now losing matches to players who are top 20, top 30. Because there's no secret anymore. It, it, it used to be with Nadal, he was up 3-0 before the game started. All the players will tell you. I mean, he was so dominant, so impressive. The locker room now, pressure was definitely... Open, but the, but it was the same with Federer. I mean, if you remember a couple of years ago, he lost to Robredo at the US Open. It was the same thing. The, everyone started to feel like they had a crack at him. You know, we, we move on a year or two later or three... We're back to the same thing. Federer is still winning a lot of matches before he started. And, you know, to and, go... And yet Federer is still losing. He's more still... Than he, more than he used to. And he's still losing to all kinds of players. Look, I just think the time to beat Rafa at the French Open is in the first couple of rounds. Okay, if he gets his teeth into that tournament, gets through the first couple of rounds comfortably, he's going to grow in confidence and he's going to be pretty dangerous. So... If he does get beaten, it's going to it's going to have to be done. The length early. of the matches at the French Open goes to his advantage. Yeah. The fact that it's in three sets, beating Nadal in two sets is one thing. Beating him best of five is a different story. Plus, if you're playing those matches on the stadium, which you've had tremendous success in, oh, I think that's a, a bit of a daunting task, regardless of how well he's playing coming in. I mean, well, but I, I, what about the opposition? Like, let's say that he gets through the French the French Open first rounds. Can he still beat Djokovic on clay? I, I don't know. The season that Djokovic has had, and they're face-to-face this year. Well, with the great year Djokovic had going back a couple of years ago when people were thinking he might win all four slams in one year, he, he lost to Federer. So my point is, I mean, it's very hard to sustain. As good as Djokovic is, it's very hard to sustain such a good tempo and just a quality that's but, I mean, to so go, good for so long. To go back to Mark's point, I mean, I'm I've, I've reading here now, after the match he lost this week to Fabio Fognini over in um, Barcelona, and his comments after, he said, today is a bad day, my challenge is to get back to the best level again, and I will work until that happens. I have the conviction it will. It was a disaster, though, today. Fabio played better than me, and he deserved to win. I did not deserve to win. Until I sort out the ups and downs I'm suffering from this season, I will continue to be vulnerable. I spent last week in Monte Carlo full of good moments. It was the best week of the year, but this one has been the opposite. It has been a negative week. I thought I would be able to find consistency, but it hasn't happened. It's, it's pretty candid. There's a lot of resonance in the words he's using, though. I'm vulnerable. I'm not playing. I, he's, well, always, he's always been honest in class. But is this mind so games? I mean, been, well, been the other side of it is. But that's this scene, the, the language used, I'm vulnerable. His opponent reads that for his next one. But is that not just some mind well, games? I, I mean, everyone knows he's vulnerable. Yes, I think it's a mind game too. I mean, I think that he's just saying this just to get the other guys thinking that he's vulnerable a little bit. It, it, there's a bit of gamesmanship involved, perhaps. I mean, I've seen it before it from seems, Nadal. It seems that Nadal used to have a, a big locker room advantage. 
the the way he got ready for the matches. It seems that that's dropped. Well, if you're a smart opponent, I, I I would still expect the best from Rafa at the French Open and these upcoming clay court tournaments. Of course, just... but what about a Mofis or a Tonga? These guys who used, oh. to, used to start this match. Well, probably more Mofis and Tonga, but. These guys used to start a match against Nadal saying this is going to be incredibly difficult. Aren't well, until they... Have, aren't these guys going to have a little bit more of a bounce? I mean, they've... Uh, these, these, I'm talking about players, Ad Burdich players who have beaten the top players in, in big events, even if they haven't won them. Aren't these guys going to give them a tougher ride this season? But, but let me pose this question, and this is going to, you know, a controversial question here from, you know, I think. Is it time for Rafa to reevaluate his coaching situation? Does he need, he's, he's, he's getting towards the end of the career, Let, you know, let's be honest, he's physically worn down, his game is a very difficult style of play, he stayed with Uncle Tony for the entire career, but is this a time to maybe go back and say, you know what, I need a little bit of outside help now, I need a new voice, I need something fresh, because I'm struggling, or does he just stay to, true to, you know, to what's worked well, for, for I'd so probably long? do what the other guys have done. I would get somebody in there, a, you know, a former Grand Slam champion who's gone through some slumps, who's had a bit of a tough time and who got back on top. The prime one for me would be the Austrian left-hander, Thomas Muster. That would be a great one for Rafa. It's true that if you look at both Federer and Djokovic, they're not changing their coaching teams, but they are adding. They're looking for ways to get stronger. With Nadal, you can argue that he hasn't... He hasn't done that. He hasn't had that. Well, let's just go back to Jeannie Bouchard for a second too, right? Jeannie Bouchard did have Natalie Torsier helping out with Saviano. So, you know, again, maybe a smarter decision for her might have been to bring in somebody to work with Saviano and to keep things fresh with Saviano. Both Federer and Djokovic can argue the benefits. Yeah, Mari Landl, Mari Moresmo. We've got obviously got Andy working with uh, Emily Moresmo. We've got Novak working with Boris Becker. Wouldn't surprise me if Hewitt started to work with Kyrgios soon and some of the Aussies. I mean, he's already helping out, you know, so many of the young Australian players that are inside the top two hundred. So, so and top one. Are we are we are we thinking that? that uh, Rafa is done or he's going to come back? I mean, is this, is this the beginning of the end or is this just a hiccup? Too early to say. I would agree with Tom. Don't count him out for this season. I wouldn't I count just, him out, I but, if, but if I'm Rafa, I would get Bjorn Borg or Muster in that coaching camp. Both of those guys have won French Opens. They've won Grand Slams. Muster probably worked harder than any guy who's ever played great clay court tennis. Um, get a fresh voice in there. Just, just, just try it. Okay, well, let's move on uh, to the next segment. Here we've got good call, bad call here. Um, in this segment here, we're going to go out with a couple of topics here. Going to be pretty fast-paced, not going to stay on these too long, but um, we've got four topics here that I want to uh, have the guys on the panel here discuss. The first one being good call, bad call. Stoza is working once again with Dave Taylor, her former coach who took her into the, to the highlight or the top of her career. She's been struggling this year or the last year, in, in all honesty, and she is now back with Dave Taylor in a sharing position because Dave is still working with Isla Tomjanovic, so she's not getting him exclusively, but she is back working with him. Good call, bad call? It's a good call. The reason is it worked before. At this stage of her career, Stosa is not open to making changes. She does not want to spend time on her backhand. She's all about the serve and the forehand. She's all about the serve and the forehand patterns. Dave Taylor is known for his patterns. 
Dave Taylor was able to, to get through to Stowe, so he got her playing her best tennis. She won a Grand Slam. She got the four in the world. Since Dave Taylor, she has looked a little bit lost. Uh, maybe she's not open to some suggestions at this stage. She's 31. A joint coaching arrangement for Sam Stosa is absolutely fine. She knows Dave Taylor great. She has full trust and confidence in him. I think it'll work well. Okay. Um, next one. Wozniacki. She has uh, supposedly, and I, uh, I believe this to be true, she's hired Sanchez Vicario to help her out with the clay court season. Obviously, Sanchez Vicario had a lot of success and experience on the clay courts. Good call, bad call? I'm going to say it's a bad call. And the reason is, when Sanchez Vicario played, the players had, on average, four seconds in between shots in a rally. That has since decreased to two seconds. The game is faster, the girls are bigger and stronger. Sanchez Vicario is essentially, we could argue, a previous generation version of a Wozniacki. Maybe she came forwards more, maybe she played more of an all-court style of tennis, but was she somebody who moved forwards, took balls early, somebody who opened the court in a variety of ways, and she played more with soft topspin. The game today is more about offensive topspin. I think it's a bad call. Uh, Mark, what do you think on that? I'm going to disagree and tell you it's a good call. Uh, the style of play that Aranxa Sanchez has is something that can be, that can help Wozniacki, not define her, but help her. And the experience that she has... Doesn't she already use that style of play? Yes, but now she's going to be able to talk with someone who's actually made that style work and who's made that style win. And it's the same thing as a... It's the same thing when we go back to Lyndon Murray and Federer and Edberg. Is getting that little extra thing that's going to make the difference for you to have... All right, but if you're Wozniacki, if you're Wozniacki, wouldn't you get somebody who was a little more offensive-minded, somebody who was more about coming forwards and finishing, and somebody who would... You know, look, I mean, the, the game is physical. You need the weapons. I'm going to argue that a rancher Sanchez Vicario in her prime would not be a top-20 player in today's game. And I just... But, I mean... I'm going to argue back there that Sanchez Vicario faced the challenges that she faced at her time, and despite a game that most people called limited, found a way around them. And we all know that it comes to a, comes to a few percent at that, at that level. Maybe Aranxa can give her the two percent. I'm going to say good call. I, I'm actually going to say it's a good call, but... And I, you know, I think that Sanchez Vicario brings some, you know, a lot of experience to the table. You know, but the one thing with you have to remember with uh, with Wozniacki is that she has tried this in the past. She's, you know, she had uh, Thomas Hogstead in there for a while. She had Thomas Johansson in there, but she's repeatedly gone back to her father. He's the he's the Tony Nadal of that situation. She's experimenting, bringing in. The other reason I'm going to say it's a good call is I do have the advantage of up-to-date internet as we're recording this right now that she did today beat Simona Halep on the clay courts there, which in which is in the Porsche Tennis Grand Prix over oh, there. But, so, but she's hired a rancher Sanchez Vicario to help her win Grand Slam. So I'm going to say bad call. However, I will say the jury can still be out. I will say... Um, so are you, are you are you fence sitting there, Tom? Are you, no, are you no, taking gonna, a bit of both? No, I'm going to say bad call, but we need to wait and see how okay. things pan out at the Grand Slams. Okay. Well, I like I I, I think it's uh, it's going to be interesting to watch, and uh, you know I think uh, obviously today's result beating Halep in three, uh, seven five five seven six two in two hours fifty eight minutes. So it's uh, all right. So my question is, we are coaches. Can has Sanchez Vicario 
when did she start coaching Wozniak? This has just happened recently. Well, can we really give Sanchez Vicario that much credit for this win today? Well, I, I agree with that, Tom. I have to say, I think that there's probably very little being done. But is it a confidence thing of just having that name no, in I your camp? I agree. There is a psychological effect to it. Well, I mean, yes, first was psychological. First order with the coach, a different approach. It's possible to get. I don't think. I don't know if this works long term, but right away the first one is quite possible. So well, I want to see. Can she beat? Can she beat the big names on the biggest stage under pressure with Sanchez Vicario in her corner? I'm going to say I don't think it'll happen. She's a nice girl, so I hope I'm wrong. I I, I think. Uh Look, I think that it's a good start. We can't, we can't say anything else. I mean, I'm, I was one of the people back, few, several months back, that said Murray hiring Moresmo was not a good decision. And I think I've been proved somewhat wrong by that. I'm still going to go with good call, but we don't know Aranxa Sanchez in that role. That's, that's the element that we don't have. The other thing, too, is I'm going to throw in there. The other thing I'm going to throw in there, too, guys, and, and I know this, because an Israeli junior that I coach was formerly coached by a rancher Sanchez Vicario. And I, I know the style of it, a rancher board. It was a, you know, a defensive kind of counter-punching tennis with interjections of all-court play. It wasn't really coming forwards, taking balls early. Wozniacki doesn't need to you know, change her overall game style. She just needs to... Tweak. ...to add a little bit more. So the adjustments would be more about coming forwards, finishing, trying to get a couple more three points a game, maybe you know, add a few serving forehand patterns or serving backhand patterns, whatever it takes to play more. All-court tennis, offensive-minded, and we can't say that Sanchez Vicario had that offensive kind of a mindset. Okay, She... While we, we could say she had interjections of all-court play, she essentially had a counter-punches mindset. For, for Wozniacki to dominate, she cannot have a counter-punches mindset. And the other thing I will say is, let's look at Justin... Let's, let's look at a Gimmel-style coaching is now. Justin does not need the job. Arantxa Sanchez-Vicario, despite what people may think, and they might not agree with what I'm about to say, she does need this job. Why? She has had financial issues and she's been back she's gone bankrupt she was recently and could still be for all we know she was the director or something like that of sports at a high school in the miami area of of a private high school so she's she needs the job so she needs the job so when you need the job the pressure is on it's not going to be an easy situation with with the wozniakis you know the, the father as mark said is the dominating Figure he calls for shots. Tough to argue because what they've done has worked up to a certain point. Um, well, I'm, uh, I'm in agreement with that, and I think if you guys are, we're going to move on to the next one. Uh, Hingis playing singles. She made a return for the Fed Cup this past weekend against Poland. Um, she lost, I believe it was six four six love to Agnieszka Radwanska, but she did say she was happy because she Is got she back on court. She is not playing full-time, and she has since said that she will only go back to playing doubles next year, but she wanted to have a shot back at the singles. Now, Radwanska, after the match, did say that, you know, Martina could make a comeback in the singles. She's good enough. But Martina made it very clear after that Fed Cup weekend that, that she was very proud that she played. She was proud that she coached the doubles team to winning that, that doubles rubber there, which ultimately was the difference between the Swiss winning that match over Poland. But was it a good call or bad call for her to make a comeback this weekend and take a spot from a younger Swiss player who could have had an opportunity to play? Mark, good call, bad call? 
I'm going to go ahead and say good call because that young player who uh, didn't get a chance to play got a chance to maybe train or see this player in action. We know it's not going to be long term. So this, she's not taking a spot up for the next couple of years. These players can still prove themselves. The influence that she's had in Swiss tennis is uh, immense. So these, so these players can only benefit from this. The influence that she has on the team. Um, if I was the Swiss captain, I don't know if I would have done it, but they, they won, their, they won their, the match. Good call. I think it's a good call. I'm going to say, if we look at Kim Kleiss's successful comeback there for a while, Justine Hannah could still come back and play at the top. Martina Hingis could come back and play at the top too for mine. Also, if you're on the other team and you see a, a Martina Hingis who has not been playing a lot, you know, mentally, that's going to be a tough thing to handle. Because you don't want to get beaten by a former champion who hasn't been playing a lot. Well, I mean, I'm going to actually jump in here and say I was fortunate enough to actually work with Martina a little bit, um, you know, more in a hitting partner role many years ago. I mean, you won't meet a more professional player on and off the court. But I'm going to say this is a bad call. I mean, she's 34 years old. She has, I, 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 I mean, I know Martina, she's going to keep herself in top shape. She will not have gone into that match without putting in a decent number of hours, so we know that. But even she said after the match, physically she couldn't play the next day because she was so tired. I think it was a bad call. I think she needs to get to the point in her life and say, I am not playing anymore. She can do her doubles, that's fine. She's done with the singles. She's not going to be able to compete competitively and consistently against those top players. Let the younger ones come through, and you can give them all your wisdom on the practice courts or by being the Fed Cup coach or captain, whatever role she wants to take. But that was a bad call. She well, needs to stay in the coaching position all, at that yeah. level. And I'll also say that if I'm the Swiss Fed Cup captain, while I said it was a good call for, you know, for the psychological aspects, you know, if you're a top 50 player or... Radwanska even, you feel a certain amount of pressure playing Hengis because you don't want somebody to say, well, the state of the ladies' game can't be great if Martina Hingis, who hasn't played for years, comes out and beats Aga Radwanska. That doesn't look good for women's tennis. So there's a bit of pressure there on Aga. I'm going to back up what Mark says. If you get a former champion involved in a Fed Cup format, you've got to give them a certain role. And... But unfortunately, I couldn't see too many of those captains having the courage to say to Martina Hingis, your role is to be a mentor and advisor for these players as, as well as playing doubles. Because Martina Hingis, as, as Mark would know better than most people, has obviously that, that competitive ego, like, not too, like all great champions have. She would be in that you know, kind of an environment. She'd be feeling that buzz to get out there and play. That's what she did. Physically, she was probably fit enough to perform at her highest for about a set. Well, right. We might say a set in a couple of games after, but eventually would fizzle out. It's, so winning a three-set match against a player of, not a of a red Wansker is... Just not realistic. It's a tall order. And, uh, so, so I'm going go, to push it on again to the next. We've got two, two uh, topics left in this segment. I just want a quick one on this because we've already glazed up. Well, we've already been on this in detail. Martin Blackman being, becoming the head of the USTA. Mark, good call, bad call? Good call. I'm fortunate to know him. Give him a live benefit. Tom? I'm going to say it's a good call because he's a passionate man. He's a good man. He's a humble guy, and I know him pretty well too. He is not going to be bullied, although he is humble. He is going to make decisions for the best. 
you know, some people think that the person in this role should be somebody who, do, who does not need the job. I don't know if he needs the job or not, but I think he wants to, to do the job. And for me, that is very important in this position because it requires a lot of passion. He's got thick skin. He's going to be prepared to cop the criticism that comes his way. He's been a player. He, you know, tra- he was a player who was developed by a coach. He got to 150. He went to Stanford. He's an educated man. He coached college tennis. He's coached in a, you know, kids at an academy that have had some, you know, success. Um, he's he's pretty much, you know, out of all the candidates, he's the most complete. You know, you know, for me, the lead guy would be a Harold Solomon because he's done it all. He was five in the world. He does not n- need the job. But obviously Harold's not interested in that at this time, so I'm going to say it's a great call. Okay, I mean, I'm going to say it's a good call. I was surprised by it, I have to say. But I think it's going to be a refreshing call because we've had a, if you want to call it, a figurehead in a Patrick McEnroe. He's a, a, a more of a well-known guy. You know, his brother was famous. And obviously Patrick played at a high level as well. But he was more of a figurehead. I never really believed he was going to be the guy that was in the trenches day to day. I think Martin Blackman will be. Therefore... Good call. Well, I also think the guy in charge in the trenches is important. Obviously, we're biased, but uh, we'll say it's, a, it's important. Good businessman is important. He fits the bill there. He runs an academy. He understands, you know, how to get things done in tennis. He understands tennis. He understands the business. Good call. Right, and we'll move on to the last one in this segment now. I'm just. This is a question posed by me, and I'd like the panel to give me their thoughts on this. Rayonich will be the next breakthrough guy to win a slam, beating out guys such as Nishikori. Um, Mark, good call or bad call? Bad call. Uh, I see Nishikori first, given the history of the last couple of years, and also the more complete game he has and the success he's had against the top players in big environments. You think that Nishikori's got the weapons to, 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 to win a slam and go that whole way? I mean, you've got to get, hit through those guys like Novak? It's tough to argue that since he's already been in the final. So he's, he was one match away. Uh, yeah, I think Nishikori has the skills. Maybe not this year, but he, for me, he's the top on the list. Okay, Tom? I disagree. I think it's a good call. Raonic has the tools to be a Grand Slam winner. Nishikori, let's take a look at his coach, Chang. Michael Chang had X Factor. Michael Chang had a... I want to say, maybe not a greater skill set than his student, but Michael Chang had X-Factor. He brought it in the big moments. His first Grand Slam final was a success, unlike his students. I just... Nishikori, to me, lacks a little bit of X-Factor. He is not Chang in that regard. Can Chang have an influence on him? Remains... Yes, I think so, but for me, Raonic has the weapons, he has the big serve. When you play... a you know that type of game. I think you always have a. I think you'd always have to give him a slight edge over a guy like a Nishikori or a Dimitrov. To okay. Win majors. Okay. Um, anything else, guys? Panels? No. Okay. The last one here. Women's side. Halep will be winning her Grand Slam before Bouchard. We've obviously touched on Bouchard today. Good call or bad call? Halep before Bouchard winning a Slam. Good call. I'm not going to be very original. If you look at their progressions, uh, specifically the last, the last season and the follow-up to the last season. Uh, Halep seems just to have more of that complete game where she can handle all these situations. Bouchard still feels like she needs to develop a lot of areas in her game. 
I'm going to say good call. I'm going to say bad call. I'm going to say Bouchard is going to pick up that phone to Nick Saviano very soon <laughs> in the near future, and she's going to say, Nick, I was wrong. Give me another chance. I'll work a long slide. You, you can still coach Sloan. I've learned a lot. Give me a shot. The other thing, too, is Halep also had a great year last year. I believe Halep and Bouchard, two players last year, both had breakout years. Obviously, ups and downs in there, but breakout years, both ended with their coaches at the end of last year. Interestingly enough, I'm going to say that Bouchard is going to go on, become a Grand Slam champion. She's going to... Like a Wimbledon champion, I think, soon. Okay, well, interesting, uh, interesting debates there. We're going to push on the conversation now. We've got last two areas of this, and you know, hopefully, hopefully for Tom's sake, Jeannie's listening to our conversation here on this uh, Talking Tennis Tune show in, tonight. Jeannie. We'll, uh, hopefully she is tuning in, and she may pick up that phone. We're going to just push on now to the last two sections of this, uh, of this podcast today is uh, Advantage Tom. And in this section here, we're going to really look into some set patterns of play that the top players have been using. We're going to look at, you know, guys like Novak, known for his great returning game, his offensive prowess, as well as his defensive. Um, Tom's going to just break down a couple of patterns of play here and look at why these guys like him are such good returners and what's, what, what are their keys to success. So, Tom, I'm going to pass this over to you. And obviously, Mark, I want you to jump in here and give us some feedback as well. In the next episode, guys, we are going to focus on more of a men's game. Right now, I'm going to talk about the most important part of the ladies' game. That's the return of serve. This year's Miami Open. Let's take a look at it. First serve, return points one. On average, 44%. That is outstanding. Peck, I'm going to use the same four players for each of the segments on the return of serve. Pekovic, 57% return points one on the opponent's first serve. Halep at 51%. Serena, 48%. Suarez, Navarro, 45%. Let's maybe take a look at Sam Stosa, just for interest. Obviously, she's made a coaching change. On average this year, first serve, return points won, 34.5%. Okay? Down a little bit more. Women's tennis is going more in the direction men's is going in some ways. The points won on the opponent's first serve is an important stat. 41% of first serve return points won. Pekovic, 55%, Halep, 48%, Serena, 45%, Suarez, Navarro, 35%. Overall, second serve, return points won. Okay? Surprisingly, it was lower than originally thought. Okay? Suarez, Navarro led the way, 61%. Pekovic, 58%, Halep, 55%, Serena, 54%. So what are we seeing from that? I mean, what are we taking from those numbers there? What's the take-home message? Well, the return of serve, for me, obviously is the most important thing. Uh, with the way the girls' game is going, returning the successful players at the top of the game are winning points on their opponent's first serve. And the gap between the two, the gap between points won on the opponent's first serve... And the get, you know, and points one on the opponent's second serve is not as far apart as one probably would think. I mean, are we? But are we? Are we? You know, there's different return styles. I mean, you take a guy like Agassi, 
he was considered probably the best returner of all time, but he was a very offensive-minded returner. I mean, he was standing up there and hitting those balls and actually looking to turn defense into offense in one shot. You look at a guy like a Federer, I mean, a lot of times he's going to be leading the way in a lot of these statistics. I mean, I'm on the ATP site right now, and, and the leader in return points won so far in this year, the leader is David Ferrer. Then we go down to Annie Murray at two, Roger Federer at three, and Novak at four. But obviously what Novak is trying to do off the return of serve is not the same as what uh, a Federer will be doing, or even a Murray. I think that you know Federer is going to be chipping a lot of balls back in play, especially off his backhand side, where most guys are going to be serving to his backhand. I think that's right. no well, secret. I, I think with the guys, I mean, the, the guys' return of serve in general is different to the girls' return of serve. Now it's... But even if you look at the girls that you mentioned, Petkovic doesn't return with the same intentions as... No, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Let's look at 47% of overall returns are made from inside the baseline. Most of the returns on the women's tour, well, close to 50%, are making the contact from inside the baseline. That is not the case for, you know, for the men. For Ferrer, in previous generations, such as when Sampras would play Agassi, yes. I mean, I think Andre was probably on the baseline or inside the baseline for first serve returns because he loves targets. So with the game being, you know, the way it is now, the, you know, the courts are slower, the balls are slower... The return thought process has largely changed a lot, hasn't it, on the men's tour. So guys, you know, can neutralise first serves and then work their way into points. Or a guy like a Djokovic, I mean, the returns are very, very solid, but he knows that if he gets them deep, you know, whether it be deep to either three parts of the court, cross court, deep, deep through the middle or deep down the line, all he has to do is get into the point, right? Then he can use his, you know, defensive skills if he has to. His yeah, I mean, offensive skills if he wants to. So uh, it's a different kind of. It is, and I mean, an, an interesting stat that you know that, uh, that stood out to me when researching this subject was that Federer, who you know he's had a so-so year so far. I mean, it's not fantastic, but it's not a disaster start to the year. But you know, he's down at number seventeen on the leaders of second serve return points. One that surprised me. I thought he'd be up in the well, top Well, Stefan five. Edberg was brought in. If we look at Stefan Edberg's... Um, and again, you know, stats are not... Stats are accurate. They are important, but they don't say what goes on inside a player's head. So, 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 so we all know that. For me, Stefan Edberg was brought in to help Federer get more offensive-minded in the sense that he wanted him to attack second serves more, come into the net and finish. So while Federer may be attacking those second serves, maybe the discipline in his volleys and his net game is not always as good as it could be. Maybe that's why the number is down slightly. Because these statistics don't show also is on the big points, the risks that are taken on the return. Yeah. Federer may have changed his game to go bigger on, on some of those big points and to go uh, take more risks and points that don't count as much. In the, women's, in the women's game, the one that stands out to me the most is, I just said there's 47% overall returns are made from inside the baseline. 51% overall points won when the, when the player makes contact inside the baseline. So that means when contact is inside the baseline, they win a lot more, they win more points than they lose. Okay. That to me, I mean, obviously, you know, the ladies' game is more about striking first. In, you know, Serena's case, it, it can be about striking first off the opponent's first serve. So what a player listening to us, recreational or top junior, 
what they would take out of these statistics if they're a female player is try to get that contact inside the inside the inside the get the contact inside the baseline, inside the baseline. make sure the percent make sure the percentages are high on in terms of points one on the opponent's first serve as well as the second okay and, and what about on the men's side i mean if you're a young i mean recreational players uh, you know, junior players, we, we, we really want to give these you guys at home some information that is relevant well, to you guys. I mean, as a, as a player, whether you're a junior or recreational, are we, are we, do you think that tennis nowadays, the, the returners are going to have to be more offensive-minded? Are we going to have to be taking the ball early? Or are we going to maybe look more and say, you know, it's an Nadal-type return that you need to be putting that ball back in play? Or... Is it a situational play? Well, I think it's got to be situational. And, you know, and if you want to say, well, okay, you know, if I say it's situational and someone, you know, a young player calls in and says, all right, what should I do more of? I'll say, well, it's relevant to what your game style is. If, you know, your game is to play more first strike tennis, yes, you may want to take some chances on the opponent's first serve. Yes, you want to make sure, regardless though, you, you do want to make sure that, that your percentage of points won on the opponent's first serve is high. And really for second serve returns, I, I think, you know, in men's, I just think in all forms of tennis, you want to be making contact from inside the baseline and being offensive minded. You know, if you're on clay and you want to make some adjustments and start back a little bit and all that, look, I, I, I do understand that, but... What, what was I that? Think, I think it's interesting to look at these statistics and see where the game is going, but it comes down to what we were talking earlier. Every player has his own style, so everybody should be moving a little bit in that direction based on their style. So players, players at an individual level, they need to look at these styles and say, this is where the game is going, how do I adapt my game to this? Rather than say, this is what you need to be doing all the time, because for some players it won't fit. Let's, let's take a look at a guy like Jack Sock, you know, the American man who's, you know, performed the best over the past couple of months on the biggest stages. Obviously, he won his first ATP title in Houston, had some good wins at, at yeah. Indian Wells. <clears throat> Is he going to be inside the baseline hitting an opponent's second serve when he tries to run around the backhand and hit forehands? His forehand is so big and so penetrating that he could get away with being behind the baseline, really striking first. So, yes, as Mark says, that is important. For the girls' game, obviously, it's different. You know, they're trying to really strike first and obviously hit more through the court and strike more through the court and hit the, you know, the return aggressively and the first ball equally as aggressively. So for them, for the most part, unless you're Suarez Navarro, she returns serve inside the baseline 28% of the time. So obviously she's got that Spanish, you know, more of a... Get the point started. Work the point style of tennis. <laughs> Working with Sanchez Vicario now, I mean, you don't know. Who I, knows? A rancher was somebody that, that, that could do it all. She adjusted the situations extremely well. Wozniacki is somebody who... I mean, when can I, adjust to certain situations well, but... When I'm coaching players, I find that you know, everyone has their own style. I mean, for example, if you're, you know, we, whether you like it or not, you're going to get players that are using a Western grip. You cannot have them standing up on the baseline taking balls early because it's just not possible with that grip, or is it, it's almost impossible. They don't have the time. They There's just, a lot of variables that always go I, into coaching right, players but, and getting But I think that, you know, when you're looking at great returners, you have to look at Murray, Djokovic, Serena, and see what these guys are doing well and try to somehow fit that into your player's style of play because I think I think Murray 
I mean, you, I don't think you're going to see a guy with a better split step. But some people cannot, you know, it's a very hard thing to do that split step as big as that and make that big step forwards. Whereas Novak, if you actually watch when he returns, he kind of just takes a small hop forwards, but he's in a very aggressive yeah, it's more and offensive. Of a glide step, it's a, isn't it? it's a glide yeah. step. It's a very offensive position to start, but his body weight is almost leaning and falling forwards into the court as he makes contact with the ball. Whereas Murray, he stands way back on the first serve and takes this huge split step and then hops into the court. So I think that you've got to, you know, take a look at the player you're working with, or if you're a recreational player, figure out your style of play and and then build in an, a role model based on that. And that that's correct. And while I think the stats are important, um, they obviously don't tell at all, but they do tell, you know, quite a lot. Either way, the point, regardless of what your style is, you need to win points on the opponent's second serve. Figure out what what's best for you. You need to win points on the opponent's first serve. If you're getting behind, you need to make adjustments, right? We do know that if you're down a set in the break, for example, and if you do need to make some adjustments, well, maybe try making more contact inside the baseline on the opponent's second serve. Oh, I agree with that. And um, I'd like to uh, move on now to our final segment in the show, which is the Talking Tennis Tip. And in this section, we'd like to give some uh, insights for the uh, recreational junior player or even the professional player that might be listening, something that they can do to improve their game exponentially. And we're moving into the clay court season here, so I felt that it would be important to give something relevant to the clay court season. Mark, I'd like you to provide us with a tip that you feel that players or coaches listening to this show could take home with them. Well, obviously on clay... Uh, a few factors change with everything. One of the things that I would develop that's not necessarily developed in all recreational players and, and junior players is the ability to learn how to slide on clay. Even on archery, you can slide. It's not as easy as on the red clay, but it's possible. And uh, a few things that you need to think about when you're, when you're learning how to slide is the first thing is the timing. The slide has to be done before the swing. You have to slide. You have to be balanced by the time you swing. It has to be the same as the little footwork. You have to slide before. The second thing that I would say is, is when you learn how to slide, learn how to use both legs. You're not sliding as if you were on a skateboard. One of the legs has to anchor you a little bit, the other one has to push. That's how you, that's how you get the slide going. Those are, excellent, those are excellent tips there, Mark. The one I will add is when you are moving towards your forehand side, a lot of players will move towards that forehand slide and their outside foot will really be too far pointed in. Get, get your foot turned out a little bit more so it's like 30 degrees pointed in or so and put the pressure on the inside part of that outside foot so for me being a right hander I'm going to turn my foot out I'm going to slide and when I say put the pressure on the inside of my right foot I'm going to cut my foot I'm not going to cut my foot in half but I'm going to draw like a line straight you know but down right between my foot. I'm going to put the pressure on the inside part of that right foot and I'm going to use my toes to break. As Mark said, we, we slide, obviously, before the contact. We can, you know, slide as we're hitting, um, slide, stop, and then hit. If we're sliding too much, common sense, you know, prevails. We are in too much trouble. 
I mean, playing some, two different. Some players, I mean, I mean, Venus and Serena have said in the past. I know that they they don't and Sharapova they don't even slide on the clay. I mean, Sharapova is a great example. She well, does yeah. doesn't want to change her footwork. Now, I'm not saying she's a great example of how to play on clay, but sliding is part of a clay court game, and I think it's very important that you spend a lot of time just doing simple exercises. And one thing I found was that it's an interesting test if you ask someone to run out and slide into a forehand. They can do it. A lot of players struggle to do the same thing on the backhand side, especially in an open stance. And that comes down to strength in the legs. And often players are weaker in one leg than the other, but also just building up those motor patterns so that your body becomes familiar with how to slide to a forehand, to a backhand, to a short ball, to a deep ball. Well, the other thing too, I think, is... Sorry. Just as a thought, you'll notice that some of the top men players slide on hard courts. So it's, it's a technique that they use. Monfils slides, Djokovic slides on the hard courts. So it's more natural to do it on clay. I, I really recommend that all the players. Are you are you encouraging recreational players to start sliding on hard courts? No. <laughs> 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 I, I you need exceptional physical qualities. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, guys, I think we're going to wrap it up here in the first episode of Talking Tennis. And uh, thanks very much for watching. If there's anything here the panelists would like to add at the end, I'll open it up now. But for me, uh, I appreciate you guys listening to us. And please keep checking back for more episodes. Thank you. Thank you. Game Nadal. One game all, final set.